Our subject today is God still in control. And comparing these verses, Isaiah 5.30, Revelation 22 and 16. Let's bow, please, in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank Thee that we're found before Thy throne, that we come before one who is absolutely uh, wonderful, totally perfect, majestic in all of His ways and His character. Uh, We do thank Thee that there is no fault in Thee. And we thank Thee for a perfectly holy God. We thank Thee for one who has given us, as we heard on Wednesday night past at our prayer meeting with the Trinitarian Bible Society, uh, who has given us a pure word. And so we're not today thrown about by every wind of doctrine. We cannot be taken by the slight of men if we anchor our souls in Thy book. We cannot, Lord, be lifting philosophy and putting philosophies and psychologies above the working of God in His Word. We're told in the book that I was magnifying Thy Word above all Thy name, and we pray that as we consider it today, we will find it to be rock-fast, totally secure, something in which we can find a wonderful foundation for living in this world and looking forward to the great eternity. Lord, come and answer our prayer. Do us good today, and may we make much of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name, and for God's eternal glory, we ask it. Amen. Of all the doubts that, as the poet Robert Browning put it, can wrap a knock and enter into the soul of all those doubts. By far the most devastating is doubt about the ultimate purpose of God. In other words, people are asking, many people ask today, has God a plan in governing the world? Now, you and I may doubt some of the traditions and the dogmas of our ancestors and really be none the worse for it. We may also take a statement of faith, an article in that statement of faith belonging to some particular church, and of course, if it is a non-essential article, then there can be leeway and variance within that, and doubting it, we can still be one of the Lord's people. We can't take some of the current fashions in religious thinking, and they change as we know from day to day. And we can doubt their value and doubt their validity and resist their intrusion into the church and still have our feet firmly placed on the rock of ages. So some kinds of doubt are very tolerable and can be exercised. But to doubt the final purpose of God that means to doubt the initial creation and then the functioning of this universe that God has brought into being, to doubt the intention that God has that He's going to save a people to Himself out of this world, to doubt as well the importance of moral and spiritual and eternal values as articulated in this book, the Bible, if we doubt these things, is there anything left to live for? Yet that's exactly the doubt that crushes many lives today. Another poet, Alfred Tennyson, can say, Yet I doubt not, 
through the ages, one increasing purpose runs. But many people can't fit into the shoes of Tennyson or agree with what he said there at all or subscribe to that idea. And so you'll hear them and they'll be saying something like this. Where is the evidence of that kind of purpose in the world? Where is there any convincing trace of a plan or of a pattern or of a design as I look in the world around me? This tangled world does not make sense. We are not getting anywhere. We're just blundering along, victims of fate, victims of chance, victims of accident, and all of our dreams and our hopes and our idealisms and our struggles, do you know what they are? They're just a waste of time and a waste of energy. They're back. But Ecclesiastes was, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and even worse than that. What is the use? Thomas Hardy asked, and he's challenging Christians here. What is the use of all your prayers, you praying people, when you have nothing better to pray to than the dreaming dark thing that turns the handle of this idle show? Voltaire, another infidel, and again we set no weight on his words, but he nonetheless said this world, his final verdict on life was, it's a bad joke. Of course, people don't generally come up to you and articulate just as these men, these infidels have done, say these things in so many words, but deep down in the hidden depths of many a soul, this doubt has begun to stir, and people are asking, has God a plan? And it's not only flippant people or anti-Bible, anti-God people who were affected by this kind of a doubt. Some of the most lovable people in the world are held in the grip of that today. A man turned in with a great burden pressing in his heart to a church on one occasion. He listened to the preacher's sermon. It was one bit of a hodgepodge, actually, of philosophy and positive thinking and very little Scripture. According to that preacher that day, the world is getting better and better every single day in which we live in it. Everything in the garden of the human heart, it's just lovely and beautiful. Soon we'll all reach the new Jerusalem by our own strength and momentum. And that man, with that burden, left the church that day out through the doors, not only hurt, but angry. And I don't blame him. Theus, the facts. That's Christ's first rule of honesty. And when men begin to face the facts, it's hardly surprising that sometimes a doubt about the ultimate run of all things creeps in. We look at the meat grinder of Ukraine and tens of thousands of lives that are being lost there. The terrorist attack on 7th of October on Israel by Hamas. The growing unrest that has resulted from that in the Middle East, increasing day by day. The tens of thousands that died in natural disasters, 2004, 2010, two really large ones then. And we ask the question, where is God during events like these? Now we know, and I'm quoting another poet, Longfellow, we know as he put it, into each life. Some rain must fall. Some days must be dark and dreary. So, some dark and dreary days, we expect that. That's acceptable. But where is God when all of these terrible things are taking place 
in just about every part of the planet. No matter where we look, we have darkness and disaster. And if we ask the question, is the world being controlled? Well, it looks to many eyes like total chaos. Look at our text in Isaiah 5 and verse 13. And the prophet could well have been writing a commentary here on what is happening today. If one look onto the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. And when it is light, it shall be dark in the destructions thereof. And it seems to be all darkness and devastation and destruction. Where is the plan? And that's what we're looking at today. First of all, the unfounded problems that men have with God's plan, the unfounded problems that men have with God's plan. This doubt, you see, of the ultimate plan or the purpose in life, it's aired in a number of different areas. And we're going to bring along a representative from each area out of each school today and let them state the reasons why they doubt there is design in the government of God's world. The first representative, where does he come from? The school of science. The reason, he says, why I doubt that there is any divine hand guiding this world along to an ultimate purpose, the reason I doubt that is science, he says. This world, he tells us, is not the product of some intelligent master architect. It has matured over millions of years through the amazing process of evolution. Chance, not design, has got us to where we are today. And never be duped into thinking that evolution or millions of years are just side issues that don't really affect too many people. Simply ask children no matter where they are, be they here in the United Kingdom, be they living in a third world country under an educational system there, wherever they're receiving formal education in the globe, ask them, have you heard the term evolution? Have you been told dinosaurs lived millions of years ago became extinct? People evolved from ape-like creatures. That's your origin, and the responses will show that the devil is doing an effective job in brainwashing generations of young people with false, faith-shattering ideas. Ideas that in turn have caused so many of them to turn their back on the Word of God, to throw out the message of the gospel, to view it as a fairy story and a feeble Little wonder statistics in the United States argue that for young people who go to church, somewhere between 70 to 90 percent abandon that practice once they graduate from high school. That's alarming. Those young people need to be debriefed. They need to be decontaminated. They need to be presented with clear reasons why we can completely trust in the living Word of the living God. And isn't it rather a pity for the evolutionary theory in a way that many bona fide scientists are questioning the validity of the theory, its usefulness. They're saying it's not adequate. It doesn't explain what we do see and what we can test. It's not credible anymore. This book tells us that a universe that is running down like a clock, and the evidence is backing that up, it also must have been wound up 
at some stage by someone, bringing us to the old argument of the watchmaker. A divine mind has created a universe. A divine hand is still in control of this universe, leading it along to its prophesied conclusion. And where does it end? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 to 11, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. We're told in verse 10 there, The heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. All these things shall be dissolved, and this wind-down of the world is according to God's Word and following His pattern. Take a second man, and he's doubting divine design in the universe as well. And that's because, as he says, the state of the world. Oh, it's not science, he tells us, that has led me to question the purpose of God. It's the state of the world. It's this pitiless, unending struggle for existence among the nations. It's the collapse of all of our idealisms before the brutality of military force and civil war and genocide and chaos. It's a feeling that, you know what, there's something demonic right at the heart of things here that's working against us all the time. It will always defeat the hopes of man. It will always play havoc with his dreams. It will always take pathetic optimism and crash it down into disaster. Purpose, you say? Plan, you're saying? Look at the world. That settles it. Or take a third person. It's not science, it's not history, it's not the world around me that has shaken my faith in a divine plan. It's the fact of suffering. How many times when you go out on outreach work and engage people on the doorstep and bring the gospel to them, they hit you with this. Suffering. That's shaken our faith. Look at the amount of suffering in the world. How can there be a God of design and love at the back of all of this? Suffering is a big problem that has shattered many a person's faith in a God of goodness, a God of design. The philosopher Hume once said, were a stranger to drop suddenly into the world, I would show him as a specimen of its ills, a hospital full of diseases, a prison crowded with malefactors and debtors, a field of battle strewn with carcasses, a fleet floundering in the ocean, a nation languishing under tyranny, famine, or pestilence. And this third representative man says, I don't see how you can possibly square the sufferings that are on this planet with an ultimate purpose of love. And I wonder if anyone here has ever felt the sudden stab of doubt right here. The fact of human suffering, how does that sit with God having a purpose? Is there really any loving purpose in command of it all? But these men are talking frankly about their problem. One arguing from science, another the state of the world, third from the mystery of suffering. But maybe with someone else, it's even more personal still. 
It's not really science or the world itself in general, nor some abstract problem of evil that worries them. It's their own experience, their own feelings. They're down, they're low, they're dejected. Well, the psalmist advised us when our spirits sink and we feel low, and we ask, Psalm 42 and 5, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? But people line up to say, cast down? How can I help that? Life has been the opposite of what I had hoped. It's so full of disappointment, so filled with frustrations. I seem to be of so little use. If I died tonight, the world will go on tomorrow as if nothing at all had happened. And this struggle to achieve something and you're living life like a decent character and you're trying to do the best you can, what a weary business that all is. Don't talk to me about a divine purpose in my life. I just can't see it. Now, listening to all of these voices, brings us to two possibilities, two alternatives. It's an inescapable either-or, and the alternative in life is this. We either just despair or exercise faith. We either go through waves of unbroken pessimism and we see nothing but darkness and emptiness and ultimate night, or we catch sight of the vision of God, standing as He does in the shadows, keeping watch over His own, fulfilling His plan, guiding this world by His purpose. There is no other alternative. There is no third way. It's between the two readings here that we're listing of this life that each one of us must choose. And we're going to look secondly today at the evidence that shows there is a purpose of God in this world, the unfounded problems with God's plan, the universal pointers to God's plan, the universal pointers to the plan of God. Where do we find this evidence? What does the Bible have to say about God's plan for the world? And I find, and it's refreshing to read, that God created this universe by design. Genesis chapter 1, many other passages. God is conscious as well of everything that is happening in the universe. Nothing happens, but that He doesn't know about it. Psalm 33, 14, from the place of His habitation, He looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He sees everything that is happening, conscious of it all, and He is also the controller of all things in the universe. In Colossians 1.17, I read, speaking of Christ as it does, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And the word consist means literally to be glued together, held together by His power. That's a term indicating control. I could direct you to many passages, many other characters in the Bible that give evidence of this. But we're going to pitch into Hebrews chapter 11. It's a good chapter to call in when this question of does God control the world at all is up for grabs. And the chapter begins by acknowledging that these people were, they were working in the dark. They were looking for answers. They were trying to trace out purposes. They were trying to find reasons, looking for an end game plan. That's what they were doing, but we're told. They all find those answers through faith 
founded on the Word of God. Hebrews 11, verse 1 through to 3. Verse 6 as well, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen are not made of things which do appear. But without faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Some examples, let's take Noah in verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. There was a future for him, guided by the hand of God, and he entered into it by faith. Abraham, verse 8 and 9, verse 17 through 19, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whether he went by faith, he sojourned in the land of promise. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Another example, we have Moses here, verse 23 to 29 of Hebrews 11, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months. By faith, verse 24 says, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He could see into the future. He understood God had plan and purpose here. By faith he forsook Egypt, verse 27, not fearing the wrath of the king, 28. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, 29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. And these men, women as well, Sarah's mentioned, Rahab's mentioned in the same context, they had been wrestling with this puzzle of life that we all wrestle with. It's problems, it's griefs, the breaking hearts that are occurring, but then God had put into their hands this word, and they looked at it, and suddenly they realized, here is the solving word. It's like finding the answer to your crossword here. Here's the code word. Here's what everything revolves around. Here's what we use, the key to open the door, what will decipher everything else. And what was that? Faith in God's person, faith in God's promises, faith in God's purposes, faith in God's providences. We sometimes sing simply trusting every day. Trusting through a stormy way, even when my faith is small. Trusting Jesus, that is all. Singing, if my way be clear. Praying, if the path be drear. If in danger, for him call. Trusting Jesus, that is all. And it was Jesus Christ these men and women trusted. In Hebrews chapter 11, they had poured long over life's jumbled, meaningless pieces, like this unsolvable jigsaw. 
They tried to make sense of them, and then one day they got one ray of light in their darkness, and the semblance of the jigsaw, the full picture, it emerged before them. It allowed them to build it. The other pieces then began to move into place, and they, the common soldiers on life's field, for a moment they'd been allowed to glimpse the great commander-in-chief's battle plan in one flash. Through the darkness, they caught sight of God's meaning about the universe, and with themselves, by faith, they had seen Jesus. How did they see Jesus? Well, we mentioned three people. Noah saw Christ pictured in the ark that he spent 120 years in building, and he became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Abraham, in preparing to offer up Isaac, his son, he caught sight of that one substitutionary sacrifice that would be Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, and he expressed faith in God's ability to perform a resurrection on the spot. Moses, through trial and temptation, esteemed the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And again, by faith, he saw the one who was invisible. They had seen Jesus. And what a lesson that is for you and me. When we're baffled by life, when we can't see a purpose in it anywhere, when we stand facing this alternative of despair or of faith, we should not decide until we have factored in the person of Jesus Christ, taken note of his death, taken note of his victory, and seen shining through our midnight darkness, the one that Revelation 22:16 describes as the bright and the morning star. Lord, I'm in darkness. I can't find a way out. I can't make sense of what is happening in my life or in the world. Let the bright and the morning star give me the light that I need. And we'll say more about him in a moment. There are other evidences that God is in control. Our surroundings, nature. Can we trace anything there? We have an abundance of creation scientists nowadays, answers in Genesis and uh, whatnot. Ken Ham, Henry Morris, many other men of similar caliber, and they've been telling us for years Everything in the universe points to the existence of an infinite directing mind, clearly working way beyond the level of some common mathematician. We've got our Creation Museum in Kentucky, run by Answers in Genesis, numerous exhibits there presented in support of this biblical account of God's creation of the universe, pointing to what Psalm 19 verse 1 to 4 tells us. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth His handiwork, day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard, their line has gone out through all the earth their words to the end of the world. We can turn from there to history. Can we trace purpose in history? It seems at times that one nation goes forward and then drops back, another replaces it, another empire is set up. Well, isn't that what the Bible says? The Lord sets up kings and He puts down kings. That's evidence. God is here in control. Also, when there's apostasy, moral, spiritual apostasy, what happens? It eats out the heart of the nation. It brings about inevitably national decay. That 
indicates purpose, as God tells us in Proverbs 14 and the verse 34, that righteousness exalted the nation. Sin is a reproach to many people, and don't we see the evidence of that all through the history of the world? Or again, turn to your own experience. I came about, said Robert Louis Stevenson, and he described a big challenging stage in his life's career. I came about like a well-handled ship. There stood at the wheel that unknown steersman whom we called God. Well, some people, unlike Robert Louis Stevenson, can't even see the dramatic hand of providence at work in their lives. But before you'd say it's not happening, think again. When God created man, He didn't bring him down some chain of ape-like ancestors and mold and model and refine and evolve him to such a degree as he is today. When God created man, he made him distinct from every other species, including the apes and chimpanzees and all the rest, by giving him what they don't have, a conscience and a soul, and creating him, as our Westminster Short Catechism in answer to question 10 tells us, creating man after his own image in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. The fact that man is gifted by God with a conscience and a soul means that he has an awareness of God. And so right across the world, people end up in falsehood, of course, but right across the world there is a desire within man to worship, worship something, have an intimate connection with his Creator, just as Adam had close fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. Because man has a conscience and a soul, it means he has a sense of accountability that deep down within him he knows, I cannot just live as I please. Ultimately, I am answerable to a higher authority. And he also has, because of that conscience and soul, he has a concern for his destiny. Now, he might tell you, when I die, I'll be buried like a dog six foot down. That'll be it, annihilated, no more. But he knows, he knows. Not only is he going to die, but death does not end it. Death does not end it. And he wonders, where will my soul be in eternity? And there have been times when that conscience and that soul, they have expressed themselves in your life, and you're only too conscious of that. What's that but the grip of God upon your soul? A clear sign that he's working out his great purpose in your life. There are clear lines of evidence, and they're pointing us this direction. God has a purpose for the world. Nature, history, personal experience all prove it, and the Bible certainly demonstrates and teaches it. But while that's good, we can't go further. Still, the mist can linger, and the fog hasn't yet cleared. Shadows of doubt can still throw their shape over the soul. As Isaiah 5 and 30 declares, if one look unto the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. What do we need to see? You and I need to see, coming out of the mist, coming out of the fog, is Jesus, who is saying as he comes, I am the bright and morning star. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. So we have looked at unfounded problems with God's plan, universal pointers to God's plan, and finally the ultimate proof of God's plan. How do I know 
And now we're narrowing the vision. We're curtailing the field. We're looking at one person only, Christ Jesus. How do I know, looking at him, that life has meaning and God has a plan? How do I know that, looking at Christ? Well, I know it when I look at his cradle. Into this tumbled, chaotic world that appeared at one point in time by God's design, in God's calendar timing, the incarnate God, Jesus, the eternal Son. And in that mysterious supernatural birth, the prophecies of the ages were fulfilled. Very detailed prophecies, many of them fulfilled by his birth. He came to this world, and it wasn't with some kind of a haphazard scheme in mind. He had a plan. What was the plan? Matthew 1 and 21, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For, here's the plan, he shall save his people from their sins. 1 John 3 and 8, the plan is outlined again for this purpose. The Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So is it not obvious, looking at Christ's appearance in this world, life has meaning, God has a purpose, it is obvious from his cradle. I know as well from his character, God has a plan for this world, a character that displayed unwavering faithfulness, love triumphant over every evil. Compassion as wide as the sea. Purity as steady as a rock. All of those characterize the one who was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And when I gaze at him, there's a voice that's saying in my soul, the meaning of life is here. God's purpose for me and for humanity is here. Follow the light of the bright and the morning star. How do I know? Looking at Jesus. Life has meaning. God has purpose. I know it from his cradle. I know it from his character. I know it especially from his cross. When a flag's flying in the wind, and it's often frustrated me when I've stopped for a photograph thinking, I want a picture of that flag. And it's just kind of lapped around the post at the top and it won't spread out to give me a decent opportunity for the photograph. When it's there, you can't always make out the design, the symbolism on the flag, but then get a, a stormy gust coming in, and it blows that flag out taut. And for a moment, you can see it all. The pattern is very clear. Is that not similar to what happened on Calvary? 2,000 years ago, the storm blast of the wrath of God, the fiercest gust of all, came against Jesus and straightened out the flag of God's eternal purpose. Now it did seem like chaos. Calvary seemed like total chaos. A baying mob falsely accuse him, crying out, crucify him, pushing their way through the city streets, grabbing Simon the Cyrenian, come and carry the cross. Our Savior dying 
shedding his lifeblood. It looked like chaos. It looked like the devil is winning. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they had got their way. But I tune in to what Acts 2 and 26 and Acts 4 and 28 tell me. And I read this, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken. And ye couldn't have done it otherwise. And by wicked hands have crucified and slain him. I read in Acts 4, 27 and 28, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. And what were they doing? Well, we're doing whatever we want, is what they'd tell you. No, you aren't. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So in that apparently most chaotic scene, God is expressing, I am in total control. So long I'd searched for life's meaning, enslaved by the world and my greed. Then the door of my prison was opened by love. The ransom was paid. That's what Calvary was about. I was free. I'm free from the guilt that I carried, from the dull, empty life I'm set free. For when I met Jesus, He made me complete. He forgot how foolish I used to be. Christ dying in His people's place as their great atoning substitute. That is God's grand plan for the universe. He never deviated from it. Embrace it. And you are saved. Understand it. And that will help you in your own sufferings. The cross is the ground plan of the universe Life is built like this. The trials and those troubles that oftentimes seem so haphazard and meaningless and coming out of left field are the path that God in His wisdom and His grace is bringing us along en route to His heavenly kingdom. How do I know? Looking to Jesus. Life is meaning. God is purpose. I know it from his cradle, from his character, from his cross. I know it from his conquest too, his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, that's God's receipt, fluttering down from heaven, confirming that work on the cross is totally finished. Stamp off approval. The work had been done, and it had been done well. Salvation had been purchased. No wonder Saul of Tarsus, meeting Christ outside the gates of Damascus, fell blinded to the earth. What had he seen? Well, it wasn't the Syrian sunshine that had dazzled his eyes. No, he had seen for that tremendous moment, he had seen the risen, death-defeating Jesus Christ. And the purpose of God was then unveiled for his life. Those meetings were Paul where the disciples saw the risen Christ, felt the thrill, the glory, the power of His salvation. 
We who have come this way by faith, those who were saved in this building today, who now know Him as a friend, we don't need any further proof that God has a plan. Life does have meaning. It does have a purpose. It does have a goal. And we poor, struggling creatures, and we are that, are not the doomed playthings in the hand of chance, thrown about like a little ball by accident or even in futility. We are getting somewhere. We are moving onwards to a day when suffering and torment and trial and problems, this creation will feel the last final pang of that. This world will be recreated. Our corrupted bodies will be clothed on with incorruption. Our Savior will return to reign. We're told all of that, God's plan. Romans 8, 17 to 25. I am the bright and morning star, said Jesus. And what a morning. What a morning He's going to bring to this planet that's now darkened by sin. He is my reason for living. He is my everything. It comes back to this. Are we prepared to live now as those who have seen the purpose of God, who in spite of all the tangles we come across, in spite of the trials in our lives, the troubles that impact us, in spite of the darkness, the disappointments, the, dis the defeats that we have, in spite of all of that, we knew God's will is coming out at the last. And though it seems to be hindered and held back and pushed into the background by human blindness and folly and sin, its ultimate victory is assured. Trust today, the morning star, when it gets dark, when the darkness increases, when it becomes so confusing, look to the one who is the bright and the morning star, God has set him in our sky. Samuel Medley said, Blessed star, where'er his luster shines, he all the soul with grace refines and makes each happy saint declare he is the bright, the morning star. Sweet star, his influence is divine. Life, peace, and joy attending shine. Death, hell, and sin before him flee. The bright, the morning star is he. Eternal star. Our song shall rise when we shall meet thee in the skies, and in eternal anthems there praise thee, the bright, the morning star.